calls that Jude has for us as believers to pursue and to follow in order to build ourselves up and to grow spiritually. He concluded that section, and it's the one that we did not get to last week, but he concludes this particular section, this particular command, with calling us to merciful living, which then rolls directly into our worship. If you look at verse 22, Jude writes this, and have mercy on some who are doubting that the life of the believer as we wait for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ is to not only contend for the faith and against error, but also to build ourselves up and then having built ourselves up to begin to show our spiritual maturity by a merciful way of living. He says that there are going to be those in our lives who we encounter that have been affected by these false teachers who are going to begin to doubt the truth of what God has revealed. They're going to doubt the truth of Scripture. And the command from Jude to us is that we are to have mercy on some who will doubt. And there are three distinct categories that that Jude gives. There are those who are weak and simply doubt. There are those who have moved past uh, the stage of doubting and actually began to believe what they've been told by the false teachers. And then there are some who are already engulfed in their teaching. And we are to respond distinctly to each one of these groups. We're commanded to go on a rescue mission to those in the body of Christ who have been affected by these people. To defend them and to, to do a, a, a mission of mercy directed at them for the glory of God. James writes in his letter, in verses, uh, chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know this, that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So it's not only Jude that exhorts us to live in this merciful way towards others, but also James as well. And Jude says the first group is those who false teachers and cults uh, have come to and sown doubt among them. And if you know anything about the cults and how they uh, come and proselytize among especially evangelical Christians, they do so by beginning to ask questions to sow a seed of doubt. I've yet to experience a case where they come with a full frontal assault of their errant and aberrant and hellish teaching and simply lay it out and command people to believe it. Rather, they come with subtle questions that begin to sow doubt in the, in the believer's mind as to the validity of what they thought they had already believed. These are the people that Jude is speaking of here. They are affected by the false teachers and Jude calls us in the mercy of God to affect them to a greater degree with the truth of God's word. Mercy that will lovingly and patiently walk them out of the line of fire and back to a place where they can be strengthened before being redeployed into the war. This is the mental picture that we have, that we are to walk mercifully with those people and to help them and to challenge that and to, to correct false thinking. Brothers and sisters, we must do so, as Paul writes to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 6, that when we are restoring people, we do so in a spirit of meekness, considering ourselves, lest we also are tempted. 
No one is so smart and so above the truth that we are uh, immune to error. It can come to any of us at any time. Over the years, I have sadly seen people who have been in church all their lives and have been raised in even Christian homes to see Mormons come to their door or JWs and begin to get them to doubt by simple questions. Begin to get them to to renounce the things that they have believed in the past, but by simple questions. And it is those people that we love and we care about and we mercifully go to them and say, but here is your faith that you have been built upon. Let's look at that and begin to help them walk out. The second group are those who start to slip into the fire. Notice what Jude says. Now, some we have mercy on who are doubting. They're, they're struggling. They're not sure. But the second group, save others, snatching them out of the fire. They've got one foot in and one foot out. These have begun to believe the lies of the false teachers, and they begin to buy into the system of the false teacher, and they're now using their vernacular and submitting to their teaching. And with these people, we are to pray and contend for the faith that will save their souls. We are to be somewhat more open and bold and aggressive and in having mercy on them, confronting the error. We must not be afraid for these people to to declare that you are wrong and to call them out and to call them to repentance. Whereas the other group may not even have embraced it fully. We're merciful to them. These people we are prophetic towards. We call out the error. We show them the error. and We call them in love to repent of that error and to turn back to the truth. Understanding the examples that Jude has been careful to give us in his letter so far. And elaborate on these. We understand without any ambiguity or, or confusion what awaits them. Whether it was uh, you know, Lot in Sodom or the unbelieving Israelites in the wilderness. Brothers and sisters, we need to remember what awaits those who do not embrace the truth of God's word. And we must, because we love them and care about them, call them out of the fire. Bring them out of the fire. Having been shown, you and I have been shown great mercy by God through Jesus Christ. And we are to show that same mercy that we have been shown to them and to venture at times into the hot zone of spiritual conflict and to pull them out. Those are difficult conversations. But they're conversations that must be had if we love Christ, if we love his people, if we love the truth, we must be willing to have these types of conflicts. I think about the people who have, we've seen the images, haven't we, in the last week of our service men and women deployed back into Afghanistan, back into a hot zone that, that is really unthinkable and unfathomable to us. And there they are, picking babies up and taking them over a wall or taking them into their arms and the pictures that have emerged of children who've been beaten and even shot by the Taliban and others, these corpsmen and doctors and marines and soldiers and airmen holding children. It's a picture Jude has of us. Go into the hot zone. 
go into the conflict, snatch them out of the fire. What does mercy ministry look like? You know, we we hear so much about mercy ministry and justice in these days. This is what real mercy ministry looks like. Real mercy ministry looks like going into spiritual conflict for the sake of saving someone's soul. Willing to contend and do the hard work and deal in terms of truth and error and to call them out. Rescuing those who've been deceived by false teaching. Not allowing them to continue on in it as if that's some kind of spiritual nobility not to contradict error. That's the most hateful thing we could do is to allow someone to go on in their lives deceived. The most loving thing we can do is tell them the truth. And then Jude moves to the third category and he says this, others, others, we need to have mercy upon with great fear. Why? Because as I mentioned earlier in Galatians chapter 6, we are told that we are to consider ourselves lest we also be tempted. None of us are above being dragged down into error. Error is incredibly deceitful. Satan is incredibly powerful. Not more powerful than Christ. Not more powerful than the truth. But we all often overestimate how strong we are. And I've seen believers with good intentions begin to think that they're so spiritually strong that they're invincible and see them engage in things when they are not spiritually ready, they're not spiritually mature and able to handle certain things, and they get eaten alive. And Jude says there are some that are so far engulfed in these flames that you need to go to them as well, but you go to them in fear. Not glibly, not casually, but you go in the fear of God and in the fear of the great depths of error and danger that they are in. But it does not change the ministry of mercy. We still need to go to them. We still need to carry out our ministry. And that ministry, brothers and sisters, may only be to rebuke the error. It may only be that that we have a window of opportunity to tell them that they are wrong and to call them to repentance. And at that point, we are shut out of their lives. That may be. But that still needs to be said. And we trust God that if they will not listen to us to bring them out, that God will send somebody else to do that. But at least we've been faithful to tell them the truth. And to call them out of what is wrong carry out our ministry of rescue with fear. Why? Because their garments have already been stained by the filth of this fleshly teaching. Notice what he says, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Not hating them, but hating what it has done to them. They are soiled. And, and, And Jude says, listen, that can happen to you as well. Be careful point is clear we are to fight back against error of these false teachers to the point that we hate not only the false teaching we hate everything about it we hate what it has done to them and upon them we show mercy and as Jude writes these verses as Jude exhorts us to that it leaves us with a sense that that we are vulnerable some of the people in my life that I have thought to be 
the strongest Christians I've ever known. Sadly, I've seen some of them apostatize and walk away from the faith. My roommate in college um, that I had great respect for, I looked up to him, he was a few years older than I was. I met him when I was in high school and ended up going to college where he did in Florida and rooming with him. Sadly, this past week was the anniversary of the, the day that he took his own life. After leaving the faith, it's painful to watch. Painful to think about where he is today. And to, to, for someone who was a leader at a Christian university and People looked up to, people would have looked at him and said, he'll never fall away. He'll, he'll never succumb to error. And yet, he did. And we've all seen it happen on a, on a broader stage with celebrity Christians, if you will, and celebrity pastors, as they are so reprehensibly called. As they leave the faith, as they fall away into error. And Jude says, you need to, you need to call them out. You need to... To be there for them, to walk them out is what you need to rebuke them, but do it with fear. And so when we consider these things, brothers and sisters, it's not to be undertaken lightly. And we should never have such a high opinion of ourselves as to say, that'll never happen to me. Because we're all capable of falling. And so Jude then moves into his concluding verses, with that playing in the background of of our minds. Jude begins to speak of a comfort and a power and assurance. We might be looking at these people and say, but what if I'm next? What if that happens to me? What if I fall away? What if I inadvertently begin to believe error? What if, what if? And and I've counseled with people and and, and talked with people that, that have a sincere Fear and a dread of falling away as these people have. And yet in verses 24 and 25, we read these words, Now to Him. That is the situation with them. Now to Him. Notice the words of Jude. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Here's the good news, Christian. We, when we make it home, when we make it to heaven, it will not be because we were better. It will not be because we were stronger. It will be because Him who kept us from falling. Now to Him who in the midst of this war, in the midst of this hell on earth because of false teaching and because of Satan, to Him who keeps us from falling be glory and majesty and honor and dominion and authority. Jude says, listen, I understand your trepidation. I understand the fear. I understand But Christian, know this. The one who saved you is the one who is keeping you. And the one who saved you will keep you until the very end. We may feel at times like the British soldiers at Calais and Dunkirk, absolutely surrounded and outnumbered by our enemies. 
outgunned. Nowhere to go. And from a human standpoint, we may feel lost. And our cause may feel hopeless. And we may worry about our children. But as the writers of Scripture are so fond of saying, when the situation seems insurmountable, but God. But God. We may feel and sense that and we may sense that rightly. But God, but to Him who is able to keep us from falling. Understanding the ferocity of the battle in which we are engaged may leave us scared. It may leave us mixed with the realities of our own weakness and fears. But God. But God. So like the Psalms of Lament, Jude's mind, Jude's letter, does not end or leave us on the human plane. Jude lifts our eyes up. Just like the psalmist when he was surrounded by his enemies. And when he is lamenting his life as it is and the dangers that he is in. Always ends those psalms by looking up and saying, but I remembered. I heard. I saw. And I would have fainted, as he says in Psalm 27, unless I had seen the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Oh, look up, brothers and sisters. If your faith is in Christ, look up and sing this song of praise with Jude. Christian, are you weary? Are you fearful? Are you discouraged? Listen to Jude's anthems of praise, and he calls us to these Songs of praise based on the virtues of God. What a comfort God is to us. Not a comfort that He gives us. What a comfort He is. You see, the comforts God gives are a result of who He is. They don't come separate from who He is. The comfort and the hope and the strength that we have in Christ is because of who Christ is. And it makes the gifts He gives that much more precious and beautiful and powerful. So important for us. And so look with me, if you will, the virtues of Christ's power. What power is able to keep us from falling into the fire? What power, Jude, will keep us from stumbling in this life? And the answer is that all power and any power Christ chooses to exert to Him who is all-powerful, who is able to do whatever He decrees and will do whatever He decrees. Psalm 115 verse 3, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Do you hear that, Christian? Your God is in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. He can send hurricanes and He can stop hurricanes. He can open oceans and He can close them. He can speak stars into existence and He can speak them out of existence. He can stop a man on a road to Damascus bent on killing Christians and turn him into one of the greatest worshipers of God the world has ever known. He can stop Taliban fighters on their way to murder Christians this morning, should he choose to do so. Whatever he chooses to do, that he will do. That's your God. Don't fear. 
He does whatever he pleases. This is a warm and familiar truth to to those who know their Bibles. For the people of God, it's the, the comforting hand of a strong and godly Counselor Jude, on our shoulder, reminding us of what Paul says in Romans 16, 25. Now to him who is able to establish you, that's to plant you down like a tree with really deep roots. According to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past. Now to him, Paul says in Ephesians 3, 20 who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. What power? God's power. I love how S.M. Lockridge closes his familiar little blurb out of his sermon, That's My King. You've probably heard it. If you've been at Colonial for any time, I know you've heard it. He said, today we're so consumed in talking about black power and white power. And this was years ago, decades ago that he preached his sermon. And yellow power and all this power. But it's God's power, he says. It's Christ's power. And Jude says, now to him, to that power emanating from Christ, he is able to keep you from stumbling. The word keep is a, a military term. The implication is that the might of the army will not fail to secure that which is entrusted to its care. You can't be overrun. And Jesus himself said that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. That's why we can preach the gospel boldly, because hell can't take it. The gospel overcomes. Why? Because Christ has overcome and Christ is the gospel. He is the good news of God. Now to him who is able to keep you from something, we are being guarded by God in in Christ. Some might look at this and say, well, then that means I'll never sin again. That's not what he's talking about. But it will keep you from falling away. It will keep you from ultimately apostatizing into the false teaching. Into a denial of Christ. Into a denial of the faith. You will be kept from that. The power of God. And particularly the power of God manifest in Christ. Are astounding for us. Of One of the chapters I can't wait to get to. Once we start our study in the book of John coming up. In September, it's chapter 6. I love the words of Jesus as he confronts his detractors in John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Not might come to me. Not have the avenue to come to me. Not have the potential to come to me. All that the Father wills and gives will come. Period. End of story. And the one who comes to me, I love the last part, I will certainly not cast out. Why? He's keeping us. Christian, he's keeping us. He's keeping our kids who know him. He'll keep our grandkids who know him. They were born for such a time as this. 
It didn't catch God by surprise. We need not mourn and start holding dirges, and it's tempting to do that. Why? Because our King wins. Our Savior wins. You cannot stop Him. You can kill His people, but you can't stop Him. And you can't even kill them. All you can do is promote them. You can't have their souls. John, Jesus goes on in verse 39 of John 6. This is the will of Him who sent me. Hmm, I love that. This is my will. You're not changing it. Have you ever run into something or someone you can't change? And you wanted to really badly? And you just realized you were ramming your head into a wall and it wasn't going to change? That's, that's a sobering and humbling experience, isn't it? So it is with the Father. The will of Him. The unchangeable will of Him who sent me. Listen again. That of all He has given me, I lose nothing. Do you know how many believers are going to be lost in heaven? When it's all said and done, how many believers are going to be lost? Zero. Not one. A spiritual conflict between the people of God and the people of Satan and Satan himself. A conflict that has lasted thousands upon thousands of years. We don't know when it's going to end. We talk about the, the, the length of the war in Afghanistan and it's been heartbreaking and heartrending for 20 years. Our men and women have fought and bled and died and that's a long time to fight a war. But this, and we've lost thousands of servicemen there. But to think about a spiritual battle where eternity is on the line that has lasted thousands of years. And at the end, in the final analysis, Jesus will have lost not one. Not one. Put that in your minds, brothers and sisters. Rejoice in that truth. Again, Jesus in John chapter 17. His high priestly prayer. Jesus spoke these things, lifting his eyes up to heaven. Remember, Jesus hasn't died yet. Jesus hasn't risen yet. But notice the certitude of his language. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. It's exactly what Jude goes on to do, isn't it? In verse 25. Even as you have given him authority over all flesh, that to all you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now listen, verse 4. I glorified you on the earth. I did it. I won. And he hasn't even died yet. But it's as good as done. Why? Because God willed it. Having accomplished the work you have given me to do. If your Savior 
can speak in his final hours with such certainty that the Father's mission has been complete in him and he hasn't even died yet, then brothers and sisters, you have no chance of falling. We have no chance of being lost. When Jesus fails, we will fail. And Jesus didn't fail. You know how I know there's an empty tomb. If Jesus had failed, even in the slightest, he would still be in the tomb. But he didn't. Every word true. Every promise good. It's not permission for us to go out and live fast and loose. And play fast and loose with the truth. As though the previous command here to keep yourselves in the love of God didn't apply anymore. And like, hey, look, if Jesus is going to keep us, what difference does it make how we live? Let's go. No, no, no. No, it is that sobering reality that Jesus will keep us. That will keep us living with him. For Him. By Him. Until He does take us home. Power. To keep. But then notice this. He not only keeps us. He makes us stand in the presence of His glory. God makes us stand. And it's not just that we stand. Notice how we stand. Blameless. No sin charged to your account. No memory brought up of the things you've done. Of the wretch you were. Of the sinner that you were born and lived out. None of that. You will stand unfailingly before the Father because the Son made you to do it and you will do it with great joy. We might be tempted to think, oh, we'll go, thank you, Lord. So happy to be here. But that's not it. With great joy, with exceeding joy, we have great sinners who've created great sins committed them with great persistence, with great determination, with great disregard and disdain for the holiness of God, great disdain for the glory of God and the law of God, with carelessness about what He thinks about us. And you tell me we're just going to sit there and go, oh, thanks. No, it will be with great joy, overflowing joy. Brothers and sisters, when Isaiah and Moses and John stood before the glory of God, they did so as a dead man. On their face. Unable to speak or to move. Absolutely stricken. Almost to the point of death. Of being consumed. And yet here we are. Not on our face. We are standing. Face to face with the living God. Clothed in the royal righteousness of His Son. 
And we are not fearful for our lives. We are doing so with great joy. Humble, reverential joy that we are not cast out and we are not consumed and we are not being castigated by the Father. We are standing with joy in His presence. And we can't be lost. And for all eternity, we stand here in this great reality. And these three amazing things begin to set in. I will never be condemned. Never. Never. It's not as though we get to heaven and everything's, you know, there's a honeymoon period in heaven. Where God looks at us and says, boy, that... That person can do no wrong. I'm just so glad they're here. And then the longer we're there, he begins to find the warts. No, that's not it. We will never be condemned. We are clothed in perfect righteousness. We have not, are not, and will not fail. He has preserved us. The reality that we are not filled with fearful, menial servitude for all eternity, but with great Joy that exceeds every other joy we've ever known. Jude says that's what you can look forward to. That's what you can hope in. How is that possible? How can we find ourselves in this place? What could we have possibly done? Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you who also will do it. Let me say that again. Faithful is the one who calls you who also will do it. You don't do it, he does. Philippians 1.6 He that began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ. Not you performing it, because if you perform it and I perform it, it's going to go sideways real fast. He performs it. He keeps it. Until the day of Christ. The virtues of our salvation. There's the virtues of God Manifest in Christ and the virtues of our salvation. We are the products of His saving, of His glorious saving. Let me emphasize something in that. It's not that we responded to His saving. I said it is in His saving and in His saving alone. God doesn't save because we respond. He saves because He sought and He saves. I think it's interesting, the parable of Jesus and that trilogy of parables in Luke chapter 15. The point of the story is not the coin and it's not the sheep and it's not the prodigal. The point of the, that chapter and the point of those parables is the father and the shepherd and the woman. The one who is seeking. You see, the one who is being sought doesn't always want to come home. Just because the shepherd finds the sheep doesn't mean the sheep wants to come back with the shepherd. It didn't all of a sudden have a change of heart. And yet the shepherd picks up the sheep and the shepherd saves the sheep. And the shepherd does its saving, his saving work. Why? Because he's the shepherd. 
And the sheep belongs to him. And Jesus has told us in John 6 and John 17 and in a myriad of other places, the Father has given you to me. I have come to take you home. I've come to seek and to save you. Not to offer you an opportunity to be saved. Jesus does not say that. Jesus said, I've come to do the seeking and the saving. You're coming with me. You're coming home. You're going to be kept. And Paul, after elaborating on that for 11 chapters in the book of Romans, gets to the end of Romans chapter 11, and he absolutely explodes in worship, just like Jude does in verse 25. You remember Paul's words? Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, unfathomable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? Who gave him advice? Who told him what to do? Who told him how to do it? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him? Who made the initial move to God that God moved to him? And the answer is... No one, for from him, Paul says, and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. What is the test of a true God? Can they save? Jesus has not only saved, Jesus keeps. He is saved and he is kept and he will keep. And we rest secure in that truth that Paul demonstrates, that Jesus demonstrates, that goes all throughout the pages of Scripture, woven through every word and every line. So that in time through Jesus Christ, salvation has come to us and that it has come to us. Now worship flows from us. This is the heart of salvation of which Jude longed to write. You, you can tell, can't you? Look at verses 24 and 25. You know what was in Jude's heart way back when in verse 3. This is what Jude wanted to get to in verse 3. But he had to deal with those pesky false teachers first. And now we get to the end and you hear Jude erupt like a can under pressure. It just blows up with praise. Just as Paul does. Ephesians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. Sounds an awful lot like Jude. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling to make you stand in the presence of His glory blameless. With great joy. Together we stand blameless before the loving gaze of a glorious Father. Brothers and sisters, let this sink in to your thinking, please. We will not stand in heaven someday and the Father pull back on his standards. We won't stand there and say, well, we can stand here because he kind of lowered the bar for us. God's gaze 
of holiness. God's righteous demands have not changed and will never change because he does not change. But Christ in his sufficiency has made us worthy to stand. That's glorious, isn't it? We're not there because the standards got lowered. We're there because Christ met the standards and then covered us in the righteousness that is his. That is weighty. That is glorious. That God did not compromise or condescend. We think of condescension as changing, you know, giving up something so that we can make someone comfortable. God didn't condescend in that way. God condescended by giving us perfect righteousness in Christ so that we can stand. And we know that God has not changed and we stand completely perfect in His sight because of Christ. To what end? To what end has God done this for us? To the end of verse 25, that's what end. So that we would sing for all eternity to the only God. To the only God. That's going all the way back, isn't it? To the book of Exodus. You shall have no other gods before me. And when we get to heaven, we will say, there are no other gods. By the way, the prologue to that first commandment. In Exodus 20 is this. Remember the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. You know why there are no other gods? Because no other God saves like our God. And we will stand in his presence saved, clothed in perfect righteousness, perfectly accepted by the Father who has not lessened his standards but covered us in perfect righteousness. And we will say to the only God, ah, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority. For all eternity, God's chosen ones will be preserved so that we might sing forever His praise. Do you know why theology matters? Do you know why a study of God matters? So that your worshiping ability is informed for eternity. You know why there's no end to the attributes of God? Because there's no end to eternity in which we will praise God. Forever and ever requires that we have a God whose worthiness goes on forever and ever. And whose people recognize that. And that is what we are saved for. To proclaim the virtues of His glory. God rightly and justly is jealous for His own glory. He will not share it. He does not relinquish it. He is not ambivalent if we do not give it. He demands it and he is right to do so. Isaiah 42 verse 8. I am the Lord, Yahweh, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Why did God, I have a question for you. Why did God inexplicably, Without reason, 
in absolute mercy, why did He save you? Answer that question. Answer that question. Why? Why did He not send you to hell? Why did He not send me to hell the moment we were born? Because we deserve that. I'll tell you why. So that for all eternity he might have those whom he saved growing in number. So that we would praise him for all eternity. God saved you for worship. God didn't save you to make you happy. God didn't save you so that you could have heaven for you. God didn't save you for any other reason short of this. That we would be worshiping and praising his glory forever. And we will do that as Jude says with great joy. Glory. Be glory and majesty. Go all the way back to Exodus chapter 33. I think one of the most formative, succinct portions of Scripture for all that would follow. Moses asking God to see His glory in verse 18. And God saying to Moses, you can't see me and live, but this is what I will do. I will hide you in the rock. So that when I pass by, you will hear of me, but you cannot see me. And what you will hear of me is this, that I am the Lord God who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. That's what my glory is, Moses. And that's what Jude writes about. We will stand and we will glorify God because he has saved sinners who absolutely are unworthy and undeserving. We'll worship his majesty. We'll bow in reverence to his glorious and majestic rule. If there's one thing that the church is missing today, in my opinion, other than the faithful exposition of the word of God, by and large I'm speaking, it's this, a sense of reverence. A sense of the majesty of God. Everything's glib and light and trite and funny and user-friendly and approachable and blah, blah, blah. Jesus says, when you pray, disciples, when you pray, here is how you are to pray. Our Father, ruling in heaven, hallowed, set apart, Sacred, glorious is your name. That's how you pray. Not, well, daddy. Not, hey, buddy. I've been in services where I heard both of those things said to God. Ruling in heaven. Sacred is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Right now on earth. Just as it is being done right now in heaven. Does that sound glib? Our worship in heaven will be one of majesty. Submitted to God's dominion. It's not about us. It's about him. You rule. 
Oh God, you rule the nations. Here's how bad it is. Pagan kings do better than most evangelical Christians today. Case in point, Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel chapter 4. Proud man. Nobody's better than me. Nobody's bigger than me. Nobody has more than me. I don't need God. I don't need anybody. In fact, I am God. Really? Come to the pasture, Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar goes. You remember the story. And he's like a wild animal. And he's eating grass. And his nails grow. And his hair grows. God says, I'll show you who's king. And when Nebuchadnezzar comes out of that time, listen to his words. But at the end of that period, I, I, Nebuchadnezzar, remember me? Raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. That sounds like Jude. And he's a pagan king. He says, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Unlike mine, he's going to end when I die. Maybe by assassination. So that somebody else's rule can take over. No, his goes on forever. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar, I tried that and it did not end well. His is an everlasting dominion. And Jude says, that is what we will say to God for all eternity. Exactly what Nebuchadnezzar said. Exactly how Jesus taught us to pray. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Someday, someday, there will be an end to those who argue for their autonomy and their rights. And we'll just put them under the feet of King Jesus and say, worthy, 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 dominion belongs to you. You're king, I'm not. I have no rights, yours is the dominion. We will joyfully and confess everlastingly and all-encompassing ways the dominion and might that God rules over all things. Jude says, lastly, we'll confess his authority. Not only will we say that those things are true, we will say that those things are right. It's one thing to say they're true. It's another thing to say it's good and right. But Jude says, we will also confess to God on that day, you have the right authority. You have the right to this. You, this is true and it's good that it's true. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 11. These things are true and nothing could be more right than that we are here at this time, by this method, singing this song. He possesses all authority. He has all right to rule and to reign as he does. Who then can stand against these things? Who will come and give witness to anything else on that day? Will you?
Will I? Will Nebuchadnezzar? No. No one. We will say for all eternity, both before time began and after time is over, and right now in this moment, these things are true and worthy of our unceasing repetition. Worthy are you. May we see and may we savor and may we love the God who saves us. The God who keeps us. Yeah, there's fires all around. We're surrounded. But look up, brothers and sisters. The sky is open. There's no impediment to the throne. Speaking of hurricanes, been through two. Don't care to go through any more. That's why I'm in the desert. But when I was in college, I went through two hurricanes. I'll never forget, my parents dropped me off in Florida my freshman year. Went to parents' orientation. Don't worry about hurricanes. Haven't had one here since 1968. This was 1995. Two weeks later. We took the eye of a Category 5 hurricane. And I can remember, they let us out of our fortified dorms for a couple of hours as the eye passed over. And we walked outside and we looked up, and it's just blue. Absolute blue. The most beautiful blue you've ever seen. And all around is a black ring. And when I say black, I mean black. But for a period of time, as the eye moved over, yeah, you're surrounded. Yeah, you know what's on all sides. You've been through the front side. You've got to go through the back side. But the heavens are clear straight up. Christian, it's all around us. But it hasn't changed what's up there. God is on his throne. He will keep you from falling. Rejoice and be glad.